It's Sunday morning here in Nashville, Tennessee. We're deep in the heart of the American Bible Belt where a goodly proportion of people are out at church praising the Lord. While this might look like a regular church, the congregation of like-minded believers inside come with a rather fundamental missing ingredient. This is a church without God. To get to the main road from my house, this two-mile drive, I passed seven big churches, huge ones. So, I mean, the church people, they got lots of choices. And for the secular community, or, you know, for any of us who felt we couldn't buy into a creed or some part of a creed, uh, you know, we, we needed at least one place to call home. Sing along, um, I can't do this on my own. What happens in Sunday Assembly, we start off with a couple of songs. We've got a great live band because we're in Nashville. We've got great musicians. Then we have someone give a little talk, a little uh, poem, or uh, we usually have a good speaker. We've had some scientists, philosophers, physicists, and that sort of thing. Uh, most of the time as an adult, unless you're in a band or a church or something, you don't get to sing. You know, you just don't get to sing with other people. You might sing to your kids or your pets or something. Without God and a speaker without... Oh, there it is. <laughs> a church without God. This was not a joke. This was an actual news piece about a real church in Memphis, Tennessee. And not only is it a real church, it's actually part of a real denomination that was started in London about five years ago. And these churches called Sunday Assembly, which are very secular, have spread out throughout the world. There's at least 70 cities that have one of these churches in Europe and United States and Africa in Australia. They get together and they invite anyone who wants to to come except for God. Now, how do you have church without God? I mean, without God, there's no spiritual gifts, right? So do you think the music could be any good? Yeah, I would, I would say in the heart of Nashville, you could probably get some pretty good music there. What about good speakers? Now, I'm not talking about the message, but what about good speakers? You think you can get some good speakers there without God? Yeah, you didn't hear this from me, but it's a learned skill. So yeah, people can, can learn to do public speaking without God. And I know what you're thinking. When are you going to learn how to do it? So. Now, I don't know if you noticed on their banner out front, but it said, all you need is good. Kind of a, a mission statement. Now, do you think that an organization, whether it's a church or not, can do good things without God? You do? You know, I would even go as far as to say that there are plenty of organizations that do great things without God. There, there's a lot of organizations that come together. They, they don't have any prayer. They don't invite God to be a part of it. They don't ask God to guide them. They just get together, and they have the best planners, and they have the best organizers, and they have great resources, and they do good things. They become very successful and even give back to their communities and to others. So, yeah, I think that organizations can do great things without God. But here's the one thing that an organization cannot do without God, and that is do God things. So how do you know the difference? If 
organizations are doing great things, and if churches are doing great things, how do you know whether or not they're doing it with or without God? Well, when God does things, he does things that can only be explained by God. He does things where he receives the glory. Now, sadly, there's a lot of churches, you really can't tell the difference. In fact, a lot of organizations are doing a lot more than a lot of churches these days. And sadly, I've, I've been in too many churches and, and too many meetings among religious leaders that they, they do all the planning and they do, they, they, they do a check of all their resources, just like any organization. And then they say, God, please bless our efforts in the name of Jesus. Why even ask in the name of Jesus if you're doing it all yourself? But when God does things, it's when churches are connected to God, they seek God, and instead of asking God to bless their efforts, they ask God to tell them what to do first. Now, don't get me wrong. Planning and organizing and using our talents are very important, and we should develop those and, and do them for the glory of God. But we first need to seek God to guide us. Now, we've been talking about the forgotten God, who's known as who? The Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about the Spirit-filled life within Christians. But just as each of us as Christians have God within us, a church that does great things for God, that does God things, is a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's begin looking at what the Bible has to say about a supernatural church, a church that is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and guided by God. First of all, I want to start by looking at the promise of a supernatural church because this was a promise that was given by Christ. In fact, about halfway through his earthly ministry, him and his disciples came to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this is where uh, we traditionally talk about Jesus establishing the church. But more than just establishing the church, Jesus promised that this would be supernatural, that it would change the world. Look at what he says in, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. Because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So Jesus is establishing the church. But the first thing that he established was making sure that the disciples knew what the church was going to be all about. He says, who do people say that I am? And they, they shared with him all these different ideas about who Jesus was. And then he put it on them and said, well, what do you think? And Peter, getting a message from God, said, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one is what that means. And all hope comes from you. And this was the message that the church was to, to spread. And then he said, the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, a lot of translations say that the gates of hell will not conquer it. Now, a lot of times Christians will read this and say the gates of hell. That means that we're protected against hell. Is that what it means? 
Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a movie where warriors go and they, they charge and take down a gate, maybe for a fort or maybe a castle or maybe some other kind of fortress? Have you ever seen a movie like that? Okay. Now, how many of you have seen that movie where gates go and attack the warriors and overtake the warriors? How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, I haven't. You're going to have to tell me about that one, brother. I haven't seen it yet. Um, even Monty Python couldn't come up with something that crazy because gates are not known for going and attacking warriors. How many of you have ever heard of a sports team called the Fighting Gates? No? Can you imagine that? Go Gates! Charge! Gates don't charge, but gates get charged. So what is Jesus telling us here? Is he saying that we're on the defense or that we're on the offense? He's saying that we're on the offense. And if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard Dennis preach on this, on this passage. And, and as he's mentioned in, in that, he tells us that Caesarea Philippi was the sin city of their day. And so Jesus was bringing out a very important point here. Even this city has no power over the church. And so the church is called to take this message to the world, a message that doesn't receive it, and yet, even hell is powerless against the church. Now, let me be clear that going into the devil's domain does not come without resistance and cost. Yes, it is a battle. Yes, it is a serious battle. And yes, there are, are casualties that come. In fact, uh, in a recent uh, Pew, Research, pre, Pew Research report, which was based upon secular research... They said that there are more Christians persecuted for their faith today than any other religious group in the world. No religious organization in the world is being more persecuted today than the church. So the war is real, and hell is powerful, and yet it's still not defenseless against the church. Now, I, uh, I had to read a book when I was in seminary. Actually, I had to read a bunch of books when I was in seminary. But one book I had to read for a missions class was called And the Word Came with Power. And this book was the story of Joanne Shelters. And Joanne Shelters was a Bible translator and a missionary. And her mission was to go to minister to uh, the Balangales people of the Philippines. And so she went there to learn about the people, to learn their language, and to translate the New Testament into their language, while at the same time trying to establish a church. And when she got there, there was a couple of ladies that came to know Christ. And once these ladies came to know Christ, there was a big uproar and fear within the community because these two ladies were spirit mediums. And this village was very afraid of these spirits that they, they had believed in for generations. And they knew that when you started worshiping God or any other type of religion, that these spirits would come in. And they were afraid that these women were, were going to die and that there was going to be spiritual attacks against their, their village. And a lot of bad things happened. These ladies didn't die, nor did they turn back to be in spirit mediums. They continued to follow Christ. And so eventually, she was able to translate the New Testament into their language and establish a church. But it took... 20 years to do it. And throughout that book, she talks about how many times she got discouraged and felt like this was never going to happen. 
In fact, her common prayer was, God, show yourself stronger than the spirits. It took a while for this to happen. But God finally established a church and established the Bible in their language. And so the church that God has empowered can break all the strongholds of hell. So let's look at the power of the supernatural church. Number two in your outline. Now, after Jesus' resurrection and just before he ascended into heaven, he gave this promise to the church, which we read about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that this is what that whole book is about. It's how God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, spread his message throughout the world through the church. This book is uh, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. But if you go back and look at the words of the apostles that it's talking about, they will tell you that the credit doesn't go to them, but it goes to God who worked through them, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He said, I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power and signs and wonders, by the power of who? The Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way to Eliakrim, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So in Acts, we see how God works through the apostles to take his message out throughout the world. Now in Acts, we also see how God used persecution to, to spread and grow Christianity. Look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution of Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Serene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord. Uh-oh, somebody didn't get the plan. Somebody didn't tell them, we're only taking the message to the Jews. And so what did they do out of ignorance? They started telling Gentiles about Jesus. What happened? It says, the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. They didn't know any better, so they just prayed and sought the Holy Spirit and began telling Gentiles about Jesus. And what happened? They began to grow. You say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't I just tell you that... The church is on the offense and not the defense. Why were they running when persecution began? Well, all I can tell you is this, is that God used it in a powerful way. See, the early church, they stayed in Jerusalem. And God was doing great things through the early church, so much so that as much as the powers, the, the political powers were trying to stop it, people kept coming to Christ every day. Many people were coming to Christ exponentially on a daily basis. So then they had to resort to persecution. And so when they persecuted the church or started to persecute the church, they began to scatter out. And what happened? As they began to scatter out, more people and more places began to come to Christ. Now, if you were out camping and you had the, this campfire going and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you were afraid it was going to get out of control, how would you get that campfire under control? Would you go and kick it and see if that took care of it? No, what's going to happen if you kick a campfire? 
These flames are going to go everywhere, and it's going to start more fires. And this is what happened with the early church. They got attacked, and guess what? The gospel began to spread. More churches began to get started. More people came to Christ. And some of these, who really didn't have a bunch of leadership, apparently, began to witness to people that the others said we weren't supposed to do that. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, well, yeah, this person really needs Christ, but this isn't the right time or place to tell them about Jesus? So what do you do? Do you just try to hit them with a track or the Bible? Or maybe just seek God and, and how to reach them? Now, several years ago, uh, when I first started taking college classes, I took a basic sociology class. And the professor I had uh, was not a Christian. He didn't believe in Christianity. He wasn't antagonistic against Christianity. Uh, in fact, he was, he was all for religion, just certain religions. But he was really into the New Age movement. I mean, he believed in reincarnation and he believed in transcendental meditation and said, you know, if any students want to learn how to clear your mind for study skills, I'll, tell you, I'll show you how to do transcendental meditation. And so I began to pray for this guy. And I, I let him know that I was a Christian. In fact, I was pastoring a church at the time. And I was praying to God about how I, can I witness to this guy. And, you know, on the final test in that class, part of the, one of the subjects that was covered was religion. And the whole test was an essay test. And the question for your religion is, what is your religion? Why do you believe it's true? And how did you come to be a part of this religion? Now, I wanted to be honest on the test, even though it was essay, so that's what I did. I was just very honest about the answer. I, I'm a Christian, and here's why I believe it's true, and I had to use Scripture, right, to show why I believe it's true. How did I come to be a part of it? I had to give my testimony. How I came into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to finish this story by saying that he called me up and said, please tell me how to come to Jesus. He didn't do that. But God showed me, you know, if you really seek him, he can open doors. He can use you wherever you're at to tell other people about Christ. But the Holy Spirit also works through the church, the local church, to send out people on special missions for God. Look at Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. It says, One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And so the Holy Spirit called who to send them out? It was the church. It was the local church to appoint Barnabas and Saul to go out and do missions. God is doing great things around the world through, through missionaries, many of whom we couldn't even tell you where they're at because it's so secret. And yet, for all of these that I know of anyway, the local church is a part of it. I was uh, part of an association of churches back in, uh, when I was in Alamogordo, and we actually had a partnership with some missionaries in Southeast Asia, Cambodia and Vietnam, and we didn't really send a lot of people to go out to do mission work, but we had a couple of, of missionaries there that, that we supported, and they were doing great work. Now, you might think that they were preachers, but um, they, really, they really weren't, although they were sharing the gospel. One was a scientist, and he was showing villages how to uh, take contaminated water and turn it into clean water for communities. And there was another guy who was uh, an expert in doing productions, movie productions and film productions. And 
he was, was part of a production group that actually would make soap operas, which were popular over there. Don't ask me why. You know, I guess it's because God wasn't, uh, wasn't very powerful there. No, I'm sorry. But anyway, they really liked these soap operas. And the biggest crime that took place in some of these communities was bootlegging movies and television shows. And so they, they would make these soap operas that had a Christian message and even the gospel in there. And they would get it to these bootleggers who didn't really know that they wanted them to get them. And they would take these movies and they would mass produce them and they would sell them very cheap on the streets of, of the society. So without going out and getting arrested for telling people about Christ, they, let it, they, they uh, had a way of having them bring Christ into their own home. So God works through us if we just let him guide us in what he does. Now, number three in your outline is that I want to look at the people of the supernatural church because that's what the church is. It's made up of people, right? In fact, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out assembly. God has called us out, and yet he, he's called us together. And it's Jesus who builds the church by bringing his people together, his children together. And so God has called us into a special community. And community has always been God's desire for us. We can go all the way back to the beginning in creation. When, when God created Adam, he said it's not good for man to be alone. And so we see even today communities, both people that, that have God and people don't because we have a natural desire to be together. And do you know what the largest community in the world is today? Anybody know? Chances are all of us are part of it. It's called Facebook. Facebook is the largest community in the world. We're all connected. 2.2 billion people, more than that, are part of this community called Facebook. That's almost twice the size of the largest nation on earth, which is China. What is the big attraction to Facebook? People even attack Facebook. Where do they do it? On Facebook. <laughs> it's amazing. Why are we so attracted to this? Because we need to belong. We have a natural desire that God has given us to connect, to fellowship, to support, and to, and to be supported. And God does this in the church in a supernatural way. People who have the Holy Spirit are part of a community that's sealed with the Holy Spirit and held together with the Holy Spirit. Robert Putman, in his book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, said this, and I quote, he says, faith communities in which people worship together are arguably the single most important repository of social capital in America. He recognized that it was a church. This is where people come together. He calls it social capital. And while I guess we could call it that, more than that, it's God capital. He brings us together in a special way. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with who? The Spirit. If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now underline that word fellowship. Back up in verse 1. That word fellowship, it comes from the Greek word koinonia. And 
That word could mean to join together as partners or companions, or it could be many becoming one. And when we look around the church, we can see that there's a lot of diversity here, and yet God has brought us together to make us one. And it doesn't just mean that we're one, but it's, it's one whole, one, one part. Many of us come together as one part. And we not only have fellowship with one another, but Paul says we also have fellowship with the Holy Spirit as individuals, but also as a church. We all become one. Look, look at how he de- describes this koinonia fellowship. He says thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. So here's many parts coming together to be one. And when I was a preteen and uh, in my early teens, I, uh, I really got into bikes for a while, bicycles. And I grew up in an era where the man in America that every mother loved to hate was a guy named Evil Knievel. He was responsible for more broken bones and stitches than uh, anyone else in the country at that time. And so I would go out and buy these used bikes uh, and sometimes bike parts from from kids around the neighborhood that that would sell them. And uh, I decided one time that I was going to build me a chopper with a bicycle. I mean, I wanted the the forks way out there, and I wanted the handlebars up here. You see nothing but knuckles in the top of my head. And so I got to tinker with my dad's tools, and I got a couple of forks for the front, and I I put them on there, and I put a wheel out there in front. It was way out there. And uh, I I, I prided myself on being able to ride the longest wheelie down the, the road. Now, wheelies are when you pop the front tire up, and you ride on the back tire, and you go longer than any other kid on the block. And so I had my new chopper put together, and I was riding down the road, and I popped the wheelie, and I was going down the road looking around to see if anyone was watching. I, ho- I was hoping that they were. And one of the teenagers in the neighborhood saw me, and he pointed at, at the forks. And I thought, oh, he sees my chopper. And then I looked at the fork, and it was missing something, the front tire. <laughs> and at that point, I knew I had a rendezvous with road rash. The koinonia wasn't quite there. It wasn't one whole. Something very important was missing. And that's true in the church as well. We need that koinonia fellowship. God brings us together to make us one. And we just need to recognize that. And so the church becomes one. And the church becomes a family because it's God bringing his children together. Now, I had a a friend um, that I got to know through a singles class when I was uh, teaching at another church. It was an adult uh, singles class. And she was single, of course, and a school teacher, and she had felt called to the mission field since she was a teenager. And so finally she got an appointment to go overseas for the International Mission Board, and she was sent to Amman, Jordan. And she went out there, and every four years they would get to come home on a furlough. And when she came back on her first furlough, I was uh, pastoring up in, in high rolls, and so I asked her to come and tell our church about the work that was going on over there. And I got to talking to her about it. She was so excited about the work there. And I said, so can you actually witness to to Muslims there in Amman? She says, we can't instigate it, but if they ask us, we can tell them about it. And she says, I have a great group of American missionaries that I'm with, and we have a great fellowship with the Muslims that, that we work with. And so we were building a relationship with them. And while she was here on furlough back in the United States, 9-11 happened. And I told her, I said, Boy, God was looking out for you. He brought you back home before 9-11 happened. She said, are you kidding me? 
She said, that's my family. That's where I really felt like I needed to be on 9-11, was there in the heart of where some of this was happening. She knew that that was her family. She knew that that's where she needed to be during that time. This is how close fellowship is with the church when it's supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Last of all, I want to look at a prayer for the supernatural church, and this is a prayer of Paul's. Now, last week I mentioned that God does speak to us as individual Christians if we're just willing to listen. But Scripture also tells us that God speaks to the churches, local individual churches. Now, this isn't in your outline, but in the book of Revelation, Jesus says anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Jesus said that seven times in chapters 2 and 3. In two chapters, he says that seven times. Why do you think he said that seven times? Because it's a number of completion? Well, that could be part of it. But he says it because he's speaking to seven different churches individually. See, as, as a church, we have family all over the world. Wherever I go in the world, I can find family through the church, through other Christians. But God also works through and speaks to, to the local church in, in a special way. And so I want to look at a prayer, Paul. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And this is Paul's prayer. He says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keeping you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be able to complete with all fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now, all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul here says that the church through Christ, by getting to know him deeper, by knowing his love, will do infinitely more than we can even imagine. And we've been talking about that through this series, wanting more. He also says in the, the last verse there, and, and underline this if you would, all generations forever. God wants all generations to worship him. And the church has been given the mission through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to take this message not only to all the world but to every generation. So does all generations mean every generation until Christ returns? Yeah. Has Christ returned? No. Does that mean there's other generations to reach? There is. James White, in a book he wrote called Meet Generation Z, and Generation Z is a generation that was born between 1995 and 2010. So this year, the oldest of Generation Z will turn 23. And one of the things that he mentioned in this book is he says this will be the, truly the first post-Christian 
generation in the United States. You think we have a challenge ahead of us? I do. Are you concerned about it? I am. Is it scary to you? It is to me, but it shouldn't be. When we go back and look at this prayer, God wants to do more than we can even imagine. I can't imagine even how to get started reaching this next generation. But you know what? It doesn't matter what I think about how to reach this next generation because only God knows how to reach them. And we have such a challenge ahead of us that we can look at it and say, well, you know, the Bible says in the last days many are going to depart from the faith, so this must be a sign of the times. Jesus is coming soon. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. Or we can say, wow, what a challenge we have ahead of us. We can't do this. And that's absolutely right. We can't do this. But God can do this through us. He can do things through us that can only be explained as a move of God. And if he does anything through us, the only way it could be explained as, is as a move of God. Now, I believe God is working in this church and has been for years. There's too many things that have happened in our church that can only be explained by the move of God. That is awesome. But there is a danger there. We can rest on what God has done in the past and praise him for it. And we should do that. But we should also say, okay, God, what's next and how should we do this? Because if things are going to continue to move, it's going to have to be a move of God. And we just need to seek him to do that. So I can't think of a better way to apply this sermon than as a church to begin to seek God and to ask him to begin to move in that way. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I want us to lead us in a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to, to pray silently before God. And this is going to be based upon the prayer that Paul gave us in Ephesians. And church, would you begin just by asking God to give us supernatural spiritual strength so we, that we can do the supernatural task that he has before us. Just ask him to empower us to do what he's calling us to do. And then would you ask God to help us experience the indwelling and the fullness of his spirit in a fresh way? And then will you ask God to help us to always recognize that he is the Lord over all that we do? And when you, would you ask God that as a church, that our love for Christ will be seen and felt in our community? And then would you take a moment and ask God to show us what our part is in reaching the next generation? And now just take a few moments and ask God to show you your part in the church. <laughs>